This morning, I want to open the Word of God for us from the epistle reading, Ephesians chapter 2. If you have Bibles and want to turn to that, it might be helpful for you to do that. I want to bring before us what St. Paul has to say about the church. So this sermon is about the church of Christ and our place in it, our calling to it, what it is and why we are committed to it. Especially would call your attention to uh, two, just to, uh, uh, two of the places in chapter 2, uh, just to bring this to our attention as we unfold this chapter. Uh, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And then a bit later, beginning in 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May the Lord bless this reading and our meditation upon it and guide us into deeper understanding of His Word in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this portion of Scripture builds on and finds us in the middle of Paul's very long and eloquent articulation of the church. We could call it the doctrine of the church, or we could simply call it his manifesto, his explanation for this thing called the church, this body, this gathering, this group called the church, which, as we know, in his ministry as an apostle, he was not only called out to preach the gospel, to bring men and women into personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but also to organize them and build them up in local congregations and then join them together in a universal church of which he was one of the apostles. Somewhat to his chagrin and surprise, because you remember his story, how he had been a persecutor of the church, not one of the original 12, but somehow, miraculously, by God's providence and a vision of Jesus Christ, he was given this ministry of apostlehood. And he set the rest of his life about the business of planting and building churches, instructing churches, teaching churches, organizing them, uh, developing leadership, and uh, reminding them, teaching them the gospel. So in Ephesians, like Paul so often does in the first chapter, he gives a very uh, uh, dense and, uh, I guess you could say, even brief summation of the gospel, which you, if you even read these statements of Paul, you realize there's so much to be unpacked. But we rejoice in these very clear statements of who is God, who is Jesus Christ, what is the work of Jesus Christ, and what it does and accomplishes for us. But he quickly, in Ephesians, turns his attention to explaining and teaching about the church. And 
what it is and why we're in it. So these portions of Scripture, just for purposes of exposition, raise these basic questions for us. We could call them the who and what question and the why question. <laughs> who or what is the church? And then why the church? Especially now in our day when there's so many challenges to the church and so many apparent alternatives to the church. What is it and why are we committed to it? And I think, I know many of you, I keep being told, are new to Anglicanism, a bit shocked or surprised or bewildered by the way we do things, maybe not fully read into the rich history and background and, and deep roots of the convictions that we have about what it means to be an Anglican expression of the church. And many of you have experiences of other kinds of churches. Uh, so I know for many you're still asking the question of why this Anglican way? Why do we dress investments? Why do we have liturgy? Why do we have communion every week? Why do we do what we do, whether it's inside or outside, uh, and uh, in a cathedral or under a tent or even in a parking lot? These uh, patterns of the church that are so central and crucial to the way we worship and the way we live together. So who are we? What is the church? Why are we a part of this? In 2.13 that we just read, you can see for one answer to that, but now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In the church we are the gathered ones. That's what the Greek word means, ecclesia. It's the assembly. It's those that are gathered together. We are the gathered ones who are in Christ by His grace through faith, not through our own imaginations, not through our own efforts, not even through our own invention. Uh, the church is not something we've made up, but the church is commanded of the apostles in the instructions they've received and the example they had from Christ of gathering His people together. So we are the gathered ones who are in Christ by His grace through faith. Paul has already articulated this even earlier than the passages that we've read together today in the end of chapter 1 when he's finishing up a beautiful statement about who Jesus Christ is and what He did, that God worked in Him and raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but in the age to come. That's who we worship, by the way. That's who's gathered us together, that one, that exalted, that true and holy one. And then it says in verse 22 of chapter 1, He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So as we think about this identity of who is the church, what are we? Just even think of that description. We are His church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So St. Paul is telling us that we, even gathered here under trees in uh, gravel <laughs> with bugs around our head, <laughs> are an expression, the fullness of His body who fills all in all. And all things are under Him. All things are under subjection to Him. Even these insects, even these mountains, even the trains that go by and everything that happens is under His rule and will be brought under His rule. There's so many things that we don't have time to unpack, but you can see here 
already. Who are we? <laughs> we are the gathered ones. But what are some other specific things that Paul tells us? First of all, we are his. You hear that in his voices. We don't belong to anyone else. We belong to him who is the head of all things, the ruler of all. We are his body. Now, there's a lot to be taught about that, what it means to be his body. And that's a very material, um, very real thing. It's not something that is imaginary. It's not something that's only spiritual. It's a real expression. It's a visible expression. It's a true expression of the work and nature and presence of Christ in us. I know there's a lot of debate about whether there's any such thing as an invisible church. You hear about the invisible versus the visible church. And that's another long discussion that we don't have time for this morning. <laughs> and we spend a lot of time, perhaps, trying to figure out who is in the invisible church. That's a waste of time. <laughs> we have the visible church, and we are to be in it, his body, together. But notice also these beautiful things that he says about us, the church. We are his, we are his body, but then it says we are his workmanship. We are his craft. We are his, um, the result of his very careful creation, design, and structuring of this church that he wants us to be. You can see this again in a part of chapter 2 before what was read this morning in verse 10 of chapter 2, begin in verse 9, verse 8, sorry, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We are the result of his careful creation. I know some of you do construction, some of you do cabinet building. You know what I mean. Imagine that right now, that this is a picture, an expression of what we are, God's intentional establishment of his body, the church. Now, I know most of us have been taught to read verses like this individually, right? We think of ourselves, that this is talking about me, <laughs> and it is. But all of the language here, by the way, is in the plural, all of it is addressed to the body. It's not that you or I individually are the body, it's that together we are the body. And even in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This church, this body, this structure, and as we'll see from the rest of chapter 2, this holy temple is God's carefully constructed, designed, and intended gathering of his people. We've already seen in these verses that we are members of his covenant people, joined with those brought near through time to receive his promises. Remember that verse 13. We're built upon the foundation of all that Christ has done. And then the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, throughout time. We join all of those who throughout time are joined together, constructed together in this body, this holy temple being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This temple, which Paul calls, by the way, the household of God. The oikos of God is the Greek. It's where we get the term economy from. Uh, economy means actually the law or this structure of the household. 
And he calls us the household of God, a dwelling place for God with his spirit. Now, these are all things that are said by Paul about the church. You can tell this is not just something casual, something accidental, something that just Christians happen to do in time because it was convenient for them to, give, to, to, to be together. Uh, and they happen to come up with certain rituals or certain practices that bind them together. We're, we're assured by Paul that these are from God, from Christ, passed down through the apostles and the prophets and the teachers, that through time and in every place we might be together. This is why in the creed, the creed, we affirm our belief in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And that evokes the nature of the church through time, everywhere, and forever, uh, which is the forerunner of the fullness of the kingdom. Well, these, these are explanations or pictures, descriptions of the church that Paul gives us here. And I encourage you at time that you have to meditate on and dwell on these descriptions of it and ask what your place is in it. So this is the what, the who and the what. But then, of course, we are always being challenged to ask the question, why the church? Why the church then? Why the church now? Why did Paul not just, I'm sorry, why did God just not continue the old covenant with Israel? Why are we not uh, practicing in those ways? Or why not just a blanket universal inclusion of all people? Why set us apart a, a separate group to be gathered, to be identified as the church? Why not just leave us alone for personal spirituality? We hear that a lot in our day. People don't want to be a part of something organized or structured. They want to have their own personal spiritual uh, experience meditating on that mountain. And by the way, that's a beautiful mountain there. <laughs> you all are looking this way, but I'm looking at that. And I, I know which one it is and its significance. It's wonderful to be out here. That's very spiritual in its way. But why not that? Of course, in uh, our day, Christians have found many other ways to organize in, in different kinds of ministries and in uh, or, organizations that lay people put together that aren't exactly the church but serve particular purposes. And some people find their loyalty and identity with those so-called parachurch uh, organizations. And they do very good things. I used to work for one called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship many years ago <laughs> and uh, got my launch in ministry by being a, a staff member of that, that very fine organization. Uh, so why not that? Why not uh, just abandon the patterns and ways of the church instead of continuing to worship and serve in the ways that we do now and that has been a part of the church through time? What is the church for? Of course, Paul tells us in even his depiction of what the church is that we not only are set apart and are his workmanship, but in verse 10 he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He calls us together for many different things, but also to serve him and to give us specific ways to serve. Some, of course, say why uh, this is the case or what it is the church is to do by answering the question in the way of saying the church simply exists for its members, for spiritual, social, or other needs. 
even physical needs. And we are disappointed with or we evaluate a church we might participate in based on whether it, quote, meets my needs or not, which we then take on the authority to identify individually. And of course, in our day, we have so many choices and options that we can do that. We can go into the marketplace and, and uh, choose things according to what we want rather than perhaps dwelling on what God wants for us. And of course, we know that many in our day have turned away from the church, and we know the church is full of troubles, the church is full of scandals, the church is full of difficulties, and it always has been, and we know about that now because we have such, quote, excellent and thorough means of communication that we're exposed to so many uh, failures and faults and flaws of all institutions, but we especially seem to be aware of those that happen in the church or in many churches. But it's obvious, I think, that the church exists for, for many, many reasons. And from study of these passages, as well as others, and consideration of what God has been doing in the church throughout the ages, many have come up with different answers to this question, what is the church for? Why the church? What does it do? And we can see in this passage that we exist because of Christ, because of what he's done. We exist as the church for Christ and also to serve him, to do his works, which he has prepared for us to walk in. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> Again, there are many different answers to that question. What are these works? And there are theologians, thinkers, leaders, as well as others who would answer the question, the church exists if not for us, for ourselves, in the way we were just being dismissive of, then the church exists for the world, some say, to serve the world for Christ. And there, there are many different emphases that are given for that. There are those in uh, the circles that most of us are probably familiar with that put an emphasis on mission, the mission of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, bringing people closer to Christ. And then there are others, of course, who emphasize social justice or the role of the church, what is the perceived role of the church in bringing about change or serving the needs of others, serving the poor. Uh, it's curious that we tend to separate those things and emphasize one or the other. And part of our job is to see how God calls us for all of those ways of service. But we know that there are those who argue that churches should change their moral standards or change their worship practices, dumb them down to become more open or appealing, to be inclusive. Some say churches should be more socially active, agents of change, or become agencies that provide services to the poor or others. Some want churches to become political action groups, proponents of reconciliation or peace or of certain partisan agendas. Some say the church primarily exists for evangelism, and the rest, all of this other, is secondary or marginal. There's many debates and many things to be worked out as we learn to serve and work together in the church. But there's a second emphasis that others would bring out, and you'll not be surprised that I find myself much more in this camp, that to answer the question, what is the church for, why the church, it's that the church exists for worship, to be primarily the dwelling place 
of God through the Spirit. The new temple, as St. Paul says here. We can see the primary calling of the church as the gathered people of God called to praise and worship Him, offering to Him the sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise that we're taught to give Him and to be His presence on earth, His dwelling place. The term liturgy that we use, by the way, means the work of the people. It's not some specialized uh, term for a particular part of the service. It means the work of the people. We are, as Paul says, the household of God, the temple which is his dwelling place. Think back to the gospel reading, and you see in Mark a picture that was presented to us in the gospel and has been understood by the church through time as a picture of what is the church. Remember what happened there. Some of you might even have been to the place where traditionally that happened on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, a gentle slope up looking at that sea where people from all around gathered. It's a picture for us of Jesus at the center, revealing and teaching the Word, but also feeding the hungry. And then He distributes miraculously to the apostles bread, and in this case fish, which then He tells them to give to the church. And this has continued throughout the ages, beginning with that ministry of the apostles right there. And that picture that we see in the gospel is one that we can have every week when we are gathered here together. Jesus at the center, the word being revealed, feeding those who are hungry spiritually and otherwise, distributing to the apostles, through his apostles, to the church, the bread and the wine, the gifts of Christ that has continued through the ages. I'd also like to note that that first emphasis of mission, which is, of course, what we're called to, in this passage in Ephesians and also in the gospel, notice that it takes place within the church. It's constituent of being the new temple. People come to hear Christ. They come to receive. And the word goes out that they should come. In that picture in the gospel, they come from all around the lake, all around the Sea of Galilee, and run to where Jesus had withdrawn to. By the way, we're given no guidance in this passage on any political or legislative agendas for social peace, nor are we instructed in specific ways to organize outreach. We see within this new temple, however, reconciliation of those who are different, uh, racially, religiously, and many other ways. We see peace, as Paul says, and then we see these good works of service flowing from the gathering of this new people uh, out into the world. Let me quote from Peter Lightheart. He says, at the end of Revelation, John sees the heavenly city descending to earth. The city shines with the brilliance of God's glory, which lightens the nations, so that kings bring their glory to the city. Lightheart says, this is not a vision of the final new heaven and earth. It's a vision of the church in the midst of the nations. And it is a sanctuary, a place of worship. Light shines and living water flows to the world through the church's liturgy. To shine God's light to the nations, the church must both speak God's word and offer God's gifts of water, bread, and wine. He says Protestants haven't done a good job of holding these two things together. Some churches are preaching centers, others are liturgical spaces. 
In some churches, God speaks, but he doesn't feed. In others, he's the silent host at the Eucharist. But then he reminds us that liturgical churches that neglect the Bible are not fully liturgical, since the liturgy includes God's service to his people in word. Bible churches that ignore the liturgy aren't teaching the Bible in its fullness because Jesus is known not only in word, but in the breaking of the bread. So may God grant us as we plant and grow our churches in this Anglican way to pray for His Spirit to enable us to be crafted together into His temple, that we truly become His fellowship, this fellowship that Paul describes of worship and word and love and service of God's works. We pray to be free from scandal and sin and enabled to serve Him rightly, but to serve Him in the way and in the means that He has given us to be the church, to serve first Him and then others. So then, you are no longer aliens and angels, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May this describe us as we join together.